Brilliant. Well, morning, church. Go on, straight again. Morning, church. Morning. Right, well, it's lovely to be with you. I won't do introductions and things just for the sake of time, but we'll, you know who, who we are, and we, we just love being amongst uh, family. Uh, we're part of the same family. We're part of Christ's body. And this morning, I'm gonna, I've been invited to speak on the Ascension, which is uh, Jesus, um, kind of after he'd been crucified, resurrected, he then appeared for 40 days, and then this beautiful moment in Acts where he ascends into heaven, and before that, he promises the Spirit, amazingly we're coming into Pentecost, the time when the Spirit was poured out, I think in a couple of weekends we'd be celebrating that, and, um, and we're just going to be looking at what it is, I think you're looking at Jesus as prophet, as priest, and as king. Have you looked at prophet and priest already? Yes. Great, and so we're going to be looking at Jesus as king, and when I was contacted by Pete, Pete said, look, we're going to be doing this little series on the Ascension, would you like to do one of the talks, and so Jesus is king, yes, I'd love to do that talk, and I'm just going to ask you a question. Um, and then you'll hear why I really wanted to do this talk. So what is the first image, or the main image, that you think of personally um, when you imagine or you picture God? Just take a moment to think about that. What's the main image, or the main attribute, that you think of when you come to think of God? If you're not sure how to approach that, when you pray, what do you say? That's often the thing. How do you identify God? Oh, Holy Spirit, you might think of it more as like... Like, not the force, but you know, the power of God entrusted to us. Sometimes oh, I'm such a good father, and we sort of approach God as a, as a loving father. Maybe one or two of you shout out. Don't be shy. Be bold. We've heard about courage. Outstretched arms. Outstretched arms. So he welcomes us. Another one? Bright light. Bright light. Brilliant. Father. Father. Yeah, my father in heaven. Yeah, a few fa- yeah, yeah the, we're come on to that. Our father in heaven. Any others? One or two more? Jesus, we think of the cross, coming through God to the cross. And so, every community, every tribe throughout all of history kind of has an image of how they think of, of God, or maybe not of God, of absence. Um, it could be Father, friend. Some people talk to approach God as a friend. You know, we sang that this morning, didn't we, about Jesus being our friend. Some people find God as distant. Often we find the Father relationship affects the way that we think of of God. Some people may think there is no God and there's just an absence. Uh, are there any biologists in the room or any doctors? Give me a wave if you're a biologist or a doctor. Great, I can get away with you soon. Um, and so, what is in the heart, the human heart? What is in the human heart? What do you think is in the human heart? Shout out, don't be shy. You guys are really shy. Come on, heckle me. Heckle, I love it, heckle What's in the heart? Muscles. Veins, God, spirit, that's a great answer. Anything else? Hopefully some blood. Yeah, you need some blood in there. Oxygen. It's all very forensic, isn't it? Very mechanical, what's in there. there there's actually, I'll let you into a little cells. Okay, stop, stop, stop there, I'll stop it. Um, I'll let you into a little secret, because the biologists aren't here, I can tell you this. Uh, within every human heart, there's a little throne. There's this little seat, and there's something seated on this little throne. And that's the thing that kind of you worship, you obey, you love. I could look at your bank statement and could probably tell you quite quickly what is seated on the throne of your heart. Uh, you could look at my bank statement and tell me very quickly what is seated on the throne of my heart. And we're going to look this morning about actually how there's a king and his rightful place is in the throne room of your heart. And anything else that's in there has got to find its right place under his lordship, under his rule, under his rule and his reign. Uh, I've 
got a wonderful assistant here, Hugh. Put your hands together for Hugh. Well done, Hugh. You've done a great job today, mate. And so we've got a few verses we're going to look at today. We're going to do a whistle-stop tour because it's quite thematic. We're going to skip through Old Testament, New Testament, look at a few verses, got a few things, a few little stories to tell. And hopefully at the end of it, we'll have a much bigger image of who God is as king. He's the king, the eternal king. Not a foul earthly king, like the kind of kings that we live with. Um, in Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7, a great verse that we often share at Christmas events. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. Another way of interpreting that, the rule and reign will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, or the greatness of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. So we're going to have a little look. Who is David? He's going to reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So this is a kingdom that is an eternal kingdom. Uh, we're going to be celebrating Jubilee soon. The Queen, we're going to be celebrating many, many years with the Queen. In 50 years, we won't be celebrating that Queen anymore. There'll be a different King or a different Queen. Every King and every Kingdom kind of gets superseded, doesn't it? Either through war or succession, death. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so I want to share a little story with you going right back into the Old Testament of when God wasn't enough. And so the nation of Israel was a nation under God. You might remember Moses victoriously leading uh, the Israelites through the Red Sea from the Egyptians, bringing his people out of slavery, out of captivity, into the Promised Land. And then there comes this moment when Israel, some years later, they demand a king in 1 Samuel. They demand a king. They want to be like the other nations. They want to be like the Philistines around them. They want to have a figurehead that they can revere, that they can honour, someone to lead them, a man that they can honour, just like the other nations, about pomp and ceremony, like we're going to celebrate the Queen um, in, a, in a week or two. They wanted that prestige and power, like a celebrity, a figurehead. And the role of Israel's king, God sort of seeds to the people and says, well, you, you can have a king, but it's not going to work out that well for you. And there are five hallmarks of a good, godly king that we see in the Bible. The first one, and this is something that a king can't do, is that kings are chosen, set apart by God, to rule and to reign the nation through four different sort of ways. They're anointed, so the prophets would go up and anoint the king. The first thing that they're to do is to rule, like we've just seen in Isaiah 96, to rule with righteousness and justice. They're to be kings who kind of lead their kingdom and their land in the things of God. That the poor will be cared for. That widows and orphans will be looked out for. It's not all about kind of lining their own nest and building a bit of a platform for, you know, I think of like the, what's been going on in Russia, you know, with the oligarchs and kind of the people perish by the, the rulers kind of live off the fat of the land. That's not how Israel's king was meant to reign. They were meant to rule with righteousness and justice. That's the first thing. The second thing is they were meant to be a great leader and a great warrior, that they would defeat Israel's enemies, that they wouldn't be overtaken, overrun, they wouldn't be conquered. The third thing they were meant to do, they were meant to be a bit like a priest. So as you were looking at priests, in that they were meant to promote the law of God, the Torah, the Old Testament. They were meant to lead the nation under God, not be a God or a celebrity themselves, but always pointing to Yahweh, pointing to God. And then the fourth thing, or the fifth thing, but the first thing they couldn't do, so kind of four things they could do, is they were meant to bless not only the nation that they were in, but the wider nations. 
through the wisdom, the authority and the justice of God that they've been given, they were meant to lead not only the nation of Israel, but be a light to the other nations of this is what living as a nation under God looks like. It's good for you, it's good for creation. They were blessed to be a blessing. And so the first kings, sort of the three kings given in the golden era, as they call it in Israel, were appointed. The first one was Saul, and he was kind of a celebrity king. He was tall, he was good looking, he was a great warrior. And so he was appointed and the people loved him. He was amazing. And Samuel prophet anointed him. So the first thing was fulfilled. He was anointed. Saul didn't work out that well for him in the end. Again, he showed that he was 40. And then David, King David, a little shepherd boy, is anointed by Samuel, the least of the brothers, out in the field. God anoints him. So the first thing's done, he's been anointed. And he was a worshipper, a leader, a warrior. The people would sing, like David, like Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his tens of thousands. They, they revered him, they loved him. They had another celebrity king. And we're told that he was a man after God's own heart. God was sat in the throne room of his heart, but yet we know if we know the story, he was imperfect. There's a story where he sends a guy out onto the front line so that he basically gets killed so that he can go and take this guy's wife to be his aunt. He said, wow, I'll tell you that, if we were doing that in the church, sending a fellow elder out to, you know, that just, oh, that's frightening, but you kind of try and make it relevant. This is like really ugly, isn't it? It's barbaric, it's horrible. So we see that these kings were all fallible. And David, in his later years in 2 Samuel, there's this, uh, I think that verse is going to come up. It says, when your days are over, so Samuel talking to King David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, so when David dies, God is going to raise up your offspring to succeed you. Someone from his family line is going to be raised up. Your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And then there's this very strange line, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so David had a son, Solomon, um, who went on to become the king, but he didn't rule on an eternal throne, an eternal, didn't rule an eternal kingdom. So we see there's a, a sense of he's getting a promise for one in his own line, but also a promise prophetically for kind of beyond that. Prophecies often like that. A word will come, particularly in the Old Testament, a word will come, a word will come for the people right there and then, but there's also a sense of promise for beyond it. David's son Solomon, he becomes the third king and like I said, this is called the golden era of Israel. The temple's built. It's just a, a, the, the nation flourished amongst all the other nations. And then very quickly, in the books of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, the, the kingdom divides. You have the kingdom to the north, the kingdom to the south. The nation turns in on itself. And we start to see very quickly that the kings that the people demanded are imperfect, very imperfect. Some of them are completely ungodly, almost evil. Some of them don't lead, like Josiah, the last king of Israel. He, he was leading the nation without even any understanding of the Torah, one of the priests. So it says, look what I've found. That's the old book out in the back. It's the word of God. It's like, oh my gosh, we should be leading the nation in there. So we see these kings really neglected loads of the duties that they were given before God, and the nation suffered for it. There's a, a yearning in the heart of Israel for a better king, a more perfect king. And who do you think we might be reaching towards? You can heckle again now. Jesus, always the right answer. <coughs> Jesus. A king who would restore and rebuild and renew the nation back to God and back to one another. 
And so then we um, skip forward to the books of the prophets, and there's a, a great verse, it won't come up on the screen in Ezekiel. I'd love you to keep your hands up um, like this. You okay doing that? I do apologise. When I was doing this in worship earlier, I was a bit worried about the people standing downwind from me because it's very hot. I got the trainer this morning, I'm a little bit. Um, but this was, sorry, losing the point. But in Ezekiel, we get this in your hand are two bits of wood that are broken. And uh, this is the word, just leave them up for a little while longer. This is the word from Ezekiel to the nation I will gather the people of Israel from among the nations, I will bring them home to their own land from the places where they have been scattered. Then bring your hands together. I will unify them into one nation. One king will rule them all. No longer will they be divided into two nations or into two kingdoms. They will never again pollute themselves with their idols and vile images of rebellion. For I will save them from their sinful apostasy. I will cleanse them. They will truly be my people and I will be their God. And there's this beautiful image of God prophetically saying, I'm going to bring the divided kingdom back together. There's going to be this special king, a king who's going to return, who's going to rule, the one king to rule them all. It's a bit like Lord of the Rings, the return of the king. There's going to be this king unifying the kingdom and the nation's going to live in the good of it. Is that exciting? It's exciting. They'll truly be his people. He will truly be their God. It's not that he wasn't their God and they weren't his people before, but there's a sense of a, like a depth in this relationship and the reality of it that the nation's going to live in the good of it. And we can see it's like prophetic. He's going to cleanse them from their sin. He's going to take away their idols and their, their rebellion. So we're starting to see a beautiful image of the gospel coming through in this promise of a king who's going to come that they've not seen yet. They've had all these imperfect kings. And then zooming forward a few hundred years, there's this little baby born in a manger. And three wise men or magi come to him and they say to the people, where is the king of Israel? We've seen a star in the sky and we know that something significant is happening in this place. And they go and they find this little baby in a manger and they say, it's the star. There's a, there's a significant ruler here. He's the king of Israel. And so already in this little baby, there's something amazing about him. In the Luke and Commission, then as Jesus becomes an adult, there's a bit of a, a gap there. But in Luke 4, we get this amazing kind of um, declaration from Jesus about who he is. Jesus goes into the temple on a Sunday. He hasn't done any ministry yet. He's just literally come out of the wilderness, 40 days in the desert. And Jesus says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me. What was the first thing that the kings would have to do that they couldn't do? So Jesus is saying, I have been anointed by the Lord like the kings were. He's basically saying, I'm, I'm, I'm anointed like a king. To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. What was the second thing that a king was meant to do? Well, the third thing, actually. But Now, the second thing. What's the second thing? To rule in righteousness and justice. To look out for the poor. To look out for the sick. Jesus is saying, I'm going to fulfill that role. The next thing he was meant to do was be a mighty, valiant warrior, which we see in a moment that he was like, I'm, I'm coming with a different spirit. I'm a different type of king. I'm not like David. We see that a bit later on. We'll come to that in a moment. And he's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, favour, the jubilee, the year of the Lord's favour. And what was the last thing that the king was meant to do? 
Not to just be a blessing to his nation, but to the nations. It's the same thing. It's the year of the Lord's favour. Everyone lives in the good of it. Not just Israel. Everyone lives in the good of it. And so we can see even Jesus in Luke 4, before he's done anything, he's saying, I am this perfect king. And I'm going to start getting on with it so you guys can see it and witness to it. I'm not just talking about it, I'm going to do it. Super exciting. I think so. Super exciting. Jesus then goes, preaches about the gospel, not just the good news, but the gospel of the kingdom. You read the gospels, that's what it says. Jesus went everywhere preaching about the gospel of the kingdom. He starts talking about this reality that's different than the reality that people live in. Where there's no weeping, there's no sickness, there's no death, there's no tears. Where, where the, like the healing that Jesus demonstrates is, is a, like a foretaste of the kingdom from which he's, he's been sent from. John's gospel, literally, all the way through it, it talks about Jesus as a king. It was literally written with that as part of the intent. That's why also in Revelation, which John also wrote, it talks 47 times about Jesus as a king. The kingship of Jesus is undeniable. He's a different type of king. He's not like these failed earthly kings that the people demanded and wanted to celebrate. When we read in the New Testament, it says the kingdom rule and reign. But Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is near. He would literally go up to someone. He would pray for them. Healing would come and then he would say the kingdom of heaven is near. As in like proximity. It's close. This is a thin place. Within me is the DNA, the very presence of the kingdom of God. And it's breaking through into the earth right now. It's come in part, but not in fullness, because it's going to come in its fullness later on. But Jesus was sort of saying, I, I'm a carrier of the kingdom. It's near. That word kingdom is the rule and reign. So it's the rule and reign of a different reality. His presence right amongst you right now. That's what Jesus would say every time he prayed for people. The basilia, that's the Greek word, the rule and reign of the kingdom, the government, the order, the way it is there, is now the way it is here. Whilst I'm right here, it's like it is there. That's why when we pray, the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's the same thing. The kingdom is being made known right now through the presence of the Spirit. Signs and wonders follow, miracles, healings, prophecy, and a sense of foreknowing of what was going on in people's lives and situation. And then if we skip forward a little bit more, John 12, um, 12 to 6, Jesus comes in triumphant on a donkey. Did you know that bit? He's coming back into Jerusalem, we celebrate that at Palm Sunday, he's sat on a donkey. And then they're all saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, coming in. Um, and they're all celebrating him and worshipping him. Blessed is the king of Israel. Your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. He's not a celebrity king. He's not turned up on a fine horse or in a Lamborghini, all in pomp and ceremony. He's literally come in in a very lowly state, like he came into the world in a very lowly state. We see he's a different king. He's not a warrior king. When he's then handed over to Pilate by the religious leaders, he's handed over to, to Pilate. And Pilate says, are you king of the Jews to Jesus? And Jesus says, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Pilate, how do you know all this stuff about Israel, about kings of Jews? Pilate says, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. 
if it were, and this is, I think this bit's really helpful, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus said, I'm not a warrior king. If I was, my guys would have got me out of here by now. We'd have had a massive fight and you'd have lost. It doesn't matter if you're the Romans, it doesn't matter what it is. But if I, if I was a warrior king, like David, this would have gone very differently. It's just standing there having a conversation. It's like this conversation wouldn't be happening if I was a warrior king. Interestingly, Pilate says to him after he says that, you are a king. So it's almost like the marker of what he said is like, of course, they would have broken him out. If Jesus was who the disciples thought he would, was, they knew what was coming next. They would have tried to break him out. But because they trusted him and they obeyed him, it worked out very different. I think that's incredible insight by Pilate. This has played out in a very unusual way. Then Jesus gets handed over to the soldiers. They flog him. Cat of nine tails. They rip his back to shreds. They mock him. They spit on his face. They pull out his beard. They make a crown of thorns. They stick it on his head. They put a robe on him. And then they say, this is the king of the Jews. And they laugh at him and they mock at him. And they beat him. Jesus hangs on the cross, gives up his life. He shouts out, it's finished. Then he has three days in the grave, then the empty tomb, then 40 days teaching in a resurrected way. And in one of the Gospels, we're told that 500 people saw this and then he promises the Spirit to the disciples. And then we see this beautiful little verse. Um, I recognise I'm skipping through this very quickly. In Acts 1, verse 6 to 11, um, we see the ascension. Um, and when Jesus said these things, first he promises the Spirit, which I think is a powerful thing. When you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, the ends of the, and to the ends of the earth. And so there's this amazing thing that Jesus says, it's better that I go, because I'm going to pour the Spirit out on you, so that you can be my witnesses. You've got a job to do. Church, you've got a job to do. It involves witnessing, it involves going. It involves Faversham and Swale and Kent and the UK and the nations. And it's the last thing Jesus says to his disciples. It's an amazing thing, really. What does he, he doesn't say, oh, look after my brother, look after me, mum, or anything like that. He actually says, I've got a job for you to do. It's better that I go. Now go and wait, and the Spirit's going to be poured out on you, which is what we celebrate at Pentecost. And then Jesus ascends. When he said these things, they were looking on and he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, two men appeared and they said, um, why are you looking into heaven? He's been taken up there already. Now, I, I want you to just think about for a moment. Like, at what point is Jesus victorious in this little journey that we've gone through? At what point is he victorious? At what point is he king? Is he, is he, he's anointed as a king kind of way before, isn't he? Like prophetically, we're sort of looking right near the beginning years before he was born, he's anointed as king. Um, he's appointed as king much later. He goes to the cross and overcomes death and sickness and the enemy. Is he victorious then? And then he ascends and he sits down and his work is finished at the right hand side of the Father. Is that when he's victorious? When do you think Jesus is victorious? On the cross. On the cross. It is finished. It is finished. Yeah. He continues to be victorious. Okay. And so I'd say probably all of these things are right. I want you to think of uh, an Olympian. 
think of Usain Bolt. Anyone remember Usain Bolt a few years ago? Uh, he, he would run the 100 metres faster than most men. Well, yeah, definitely faster. I think he's got the record still. And uh, at the end of it, is he victorious? He's finished the race. Is he victorious? He's the world champion. He's the best of the best. He does his victory lap. Is he victorious then? Of course he is. Yes. And then he goes up the podium and he gets and receives his medal, like the crown of his glory, of how great he is. Is he victorious then? Yeah. Of course he is. But the victory is won kind of when it's finished, isn't it? The race is finished. He's crossed the line. It's finished. On the cross, it is finished. It's done. But yet for Jesus, there's this period of like three days in the tomb when he goes and preaches to the captives, kind of some sort of supernatural reality that's half us to grasp. Is he overcoming Satan then? There's something going on there. He's already declared it's finished on the cross, but yet he's in the grave for three days. And then he's resurrected, and it's kind of like the victory lap. He spends 40 days, it's a very long victory lap. He spends 40 days wandering around to Jerusalem teaching people about the kingdom of heaven, about the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom. He appears to 500 people, showing his disciples the wounds in his hands. It's a long victory lap, and then he ascends. It's like he goes up the podium, he's lifted up to be celebrated and take his rightful place as the champion, the victorious one over sin and death. And he's lifted up almost on the podium, and he ascends to heaven to the right-hand side of the Father, and he's seated at the throne. And the reason that he's seated in the throne is because it is finished. The work is done, it's completely compressed. It's finished. But it was finished 43 days ago. Was it not on the cross? So, so it's a kind of a weird one to grasp. I, I don't know if you've ever seen the... Um, how we do for time? A couple of minutes. A couple of minutes, great. So the film The Lion King. Does anyone like The Lion King? Lion King? What's that? The Lion King. Um, and you've got this beautiful uh, young cub called Simba. Dad is called Mustafa. Mustafa? Mufasa. See, I knew someone would know. Well done, Ian. You get the gold star. Um, and there's a, a monkey called Rafiki, a wise old monkey, who uh, appoints, anoints Simba to be the future king. Like Jesus was anointed, wasn't he, in those early days? Kind of prophetically in the Old Testament, but then in the New Testament, in the manger, he is a, he's anointed, isn't he? Like these uh, wise men come and, and recognise who he is. This is a, the future king of the nation. Um, but he's not the king. He's not the king until Mufasa is ruthlessly killed by his uncle Scar, and then Scar's the king. And uh, Simba, I've got to try and remember the name, sorry, it's really hard. Simba is then put into exile, and he disappears off, and he meets the amazing Timon and Pumbaa, if you've ever seen the, the, the cartoon. Um, and then he returns back to Pride Rock, to, to where his people are, and they're in captivity. His evil uncle Scar and the hyenas are kind of ruling in terror. Not, he's not a good king. He's not a righteous king. He's not leading the way that Mustafa, Mustafa, whatever his name is, the way that he ruled and reigned. And there's this amazing battle that goes on um, between Simba and Scar. And Scar is thrown down. Simba is victorious. He is now the king of the tribe. But it's not actually until Rafiki goes over to Simba and then points to the top of the rock, to the top of Pride Rock. And then Simba's got to go up and, and take his rightful place where Musafa used to be. Lifted up, high and lifted up like the Olympian on the, on the podium, taking his higher place to show that he's victorious and all the creation bows before him. All the other animals bow down and worship this amazing new king, Simba, who's going to rule and reign in righteousness and justice. And it's like that with Jesus. 
He was anointed and appointed very early on. He has this battle that goes on. He overcomes sin and death and sickness. The work of the enemy literally crushes the enemy under his feet. And then he takes his rightful place at the right hand side of God as the ascended king. And so why is this important to us, do you think? Well, firstly, it's important because it means that he rules and reigns eternally. He's not a king that's going to expire, that's going to have to give his, his throne up to another heir who may or may not rule in righteousness and justice and all the other things that we've seen as, a, as, as someone who's got to conquer Israel's enemies. Jesus has permanently conquered our enemy. It says in 1 Corinthians, For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus has literally stamped on Satan's head. He has crushed him. The effects of sin and destruction are gone. But yet we're kind of in the strange victory lap bit where there's still a bit of thrashing going on. We're not in the eternal kingdom just yet. And so you know I said earlier there's like a little throne room in the heart. But the thing is the enemy knows that he can't get in the throne room in heaven anymore. He's been conquered. But he can get into the throne room of your heart. He can rule and reign there. He can take up a place there. If we give him the, the permission, the authority, sometimes we don't recognise we're doing it. Sometimes it could be just that we fall in love with something that's so good that it becomes a God thing and then it becomes a bad thing. When a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. When anything takes that kind of throne room place and dislodges Jesus and Jesus then becomes a pocket God, not someone who lives in the throne room of your heart but in your back pocket and you go to him just for a little bit of support and help when it's all going a bit bit wrong he's not a butler he's a king we don't just ring our bell and say Jesus help me out now I'm in a bit of trouble he's the king it means that he is a friend but he's far more than a friend it means that when we share the gospel with people I've heard the gospel like shared so many times by people when they talk about and if, you know, who doesn't want great friends who feels lonely sometimes? I'd love the best of friends. Jesus is the best of friends. But we can't share the gospel with people saying that Jesus is just a friend. He's a king. When Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my teaching. Friends don't say, if you love me, you'll obey me. You know, hang on, you're a bit of a power freak, aren't you? But a king can say that. The king of all creation can say, if you love me, you'll obey me. Because if we're not obeying him, it means someone else is on the throne. Something else is on the throne. And so that means that our gospel proclamation has got to be about the King, Jesus, risen up high above everything else. High above your problems. High above the problems in the world. High above all the challenges and the things that we go through. He's a King of truth. If we love Him, we'll obey His teaching. That means what He says about the Kingdom is the primary reality. We live in a world where truth is redefined every five minutes. It's confusing, isn't it? It's bamboozling. It's hard to know what you can do, what you can't do, what you can say, what you can't say. So we all just sort of detach, bury our heads because we don't want to cause any trouble. And all the while, we evil advances, isn't it? But when Jesus is in the throne room of our heart, high and lifted up as a church, we like magnify and lift him up in our worship, in our witness. The Spirit's been given to us for that. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Because he's no longer like a king that's going to get superseded and there might be a different king with a different set of rules. Like there is, you know, a different 
Um, we don't really have kings, but now a different person in Parliament who brings on a load of different roles that we do in the schools or in different places. We see that this is an eternal reality. Jesus has come to make the eternal kingdom made known to us. Now, worship team, would you be alright to jump up? And I'll just kind of bring us into land. And we're just going to, I think the appropriate response is worship, to magnify Jesus. I think all of the words we've had today have been about lifting our head up, whether it be to the lights in the sky, the World War thing, whether it be the cross, uh, whether it be the roofs of the house. The, it's like lift your church, lift your heads up. Because where is he? He's ascended. He's lifted up. He's on the podium. He's on the throne. And so in worship, what we do is we sort of re-enthrone Jesus in our lives. We say, Jesus, would you come and take your right place in my heart. Can we all stand for a moment? I just want to read um, one final verse, if that's okay. Can we go to Philippians 2, 9 to 11? Therefore God exalted him, exalted Jesus, to the highest place, he's high and lifted up, gave him the name that is above every name, there's no one above him, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, he's a king, we revere him. We bow down to him in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So he rules the cosmos, not just here on, a, on an earthly level, but all of the spiritual plane. And every tongue would acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.